0: Well, we are back in the book of James. We have one more chapter, James chapter 5, to do three sermons out of here. And uh, we kind of stopped to take a break for Easter, and now we're back in James. Uh, So we got to paint a little bit of a picture, because it's been a while since we've been in the book of James. James is a book about works and how they relate to faith. James says that faith without works is dead. And works give life to faith. That we as Christians need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. James is emphasizing not that we get saved by the stuff we do. We get saved by Jesus. But if we really are saved, there ought to be fruit. There ought to be changes in our lives. And if we are somehow stuck and not changing, that's probably a sign that there is a problem at work. Now, in the book of James, he is sort of rounding third and heading for home. He's starting to wrap up his letter. And he gives a couple of warnings to specific groups of people in the church. We have already, a few weeks back, looked at one a warning to those people who plan out their lives as if they can decide everything that's going to happen in the future. And James says, no, it doesn't work that way. And here, we have a very bitey passage about warning to the rich. And uh, as, I, as I got the text out this week and looked at it, I thought, oh man, this is one of those texts I'm not sure I really want to talk about. Um, but part of why I, I, re- I preach through books every couple times a year is because I want to be forced to preach certain things I might not want to talk about personally, that I don't want to pass along all my weaknesses to you. And so It's a way of me kind of pushing, and this text is certainly a little bit pushing. So here we go. We're in James chapter 5, just the first six verses. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fatted your heart, hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Here ends the reading of God's word. Bitey, right? There's not, not a little holding back. It's pretty in your face. Now, we, we have a problem as people. We tend to like our issues very simple. And so we, we tend to, to live our lives primarily in generation, in overgeneralizations generalizations and taking sides, right? We have a phrase. If you're not for us, you're against us, right? We like our sides. We like it simple. You think about this. When we talk about any president, any president we've had in our lifetime, you either hate that president or like that president. You don't normally have an okay feeling about that president. We don't normally have like a balanced view. We do this in our lives too, right? Somebody in your family probably played the black sheep role and they were bad and they were bad all the time. I mean, we overgeneralize. And that way, it's, life can be simple. We can tell our, our stories simply. We can uh, decide when we meet people whether they're for us or against us, if they're on our side or not. But life is often more complicated than that, Right? This is probably why the Bible is written the way it is. You can't just go to the money section and say, okay, what does the Bible say about money? No, it's written in story. It's written in letter. It's written in poetry. It's written all over the place, all through different time periods and from different authors. So you have to wrestle with it. It's much more complicated. It's never that simple. We've done this with money and possessions in the church, right? Right. We've had certain people that have said money and possessions, wealth is bad. So we should all have basically vows of poverty. We shouldn't have nice stuff. We shouldn't have nice things. In fact, some of you, probably your parents or your grandparents felt bad when they bought nice stuff. Anybody have people in their family that were like that? They felt bad. They felt guilty when they had nice things. Of course, there's the other corner, right? In one corner is this vow of poverty, possessions are bad. The other corner says, no, possessions are great. In fact, you can go on to TV and see TV preachers that that say that Jesus is all about your possessions. That he wants to give you all this wealth and all these great things and all this great money. And I have news for you. The truth is somewhere in the middle. It's not that simple. And in fact, this text seems to be a vow of poverty corner kind of text. But as we look at it, I think you're going to see, and when we compare it to some other texts, it's not so simple. So let's walk through the text. Our text begins clearly with a warning. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming. And then it describes your riches that are rotting. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded, and they're an evidence against you. But James does something really interesting with it. He doesn't just say that that your stuff is corroded. What does he also imply? He also implies that your stuff has the ability to corrode you. Right? Your gold and your silver have corroded, verse 3, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That your stuff has the ability to eat at you, to eat away at who you are, If you've ever read the the book, The Hobbit, or seen the movie, the the gold that the dwarves have that that they're trying to rescue back from the dragon has a poison, a sickness on it that that captures people. It's why the dragon in the movie, in the book, was was drawn to it it, and it bothers the dwarves. It becomes this important thing that that much money and that much gold has the ability to poison and corrupt you. They corrode you. They rot you. And James has this very physical thing. Just like your garments go old, just like your your silver gets tarnished, you get tarnished and you get wore out. You have laid up treasure in the last days, says James. Well, well, as soon as we start talking about treasure in the last days and and all this stuff about corroding, we we ought to think of another verse, right? That Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in to steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus asked, Where are you investing yourself? Where are you really investing your life? Is it in stuff that's here? Because we have a way of saying this too, right? You can't take it with you. You can invest so much in things that are here that really in the end don't matter. Where are you investing your treasure? Because your treasure guides your heart. It's really amazing how Jesus describes this. That what you spend money on and what you care about with your possessions tends to guide your heart. And I could prove this, right? If you go buy a car, you're going to suddenly love driving it. You're going to drive that new car everywhere. Why? Because you put your investment into it and your heart tends to be in it. You ever had to buy something that your heart wasn't really in and you try to force yourself to like it? It's because you're naturally, your heart wants to follow that and you sometimes can't because it's not something you wanted to buy. Your heart follows your possessions. Jesus goes so far just a little bit later in Matthew 6 to say no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Jesus puts this as a dichotomy. You're probably going to give your life to one of these two things and you need to be careful which one it is. Not only do you have to be careful with possessions because they can corrode you and can keep you from God, but they also condemn you in how you earn them. James talks about this a number of different ways, right? Wages held back against others cry out against you. Because you have cheated, they cry out, and God hears that. You're in luxury and self-indulgence. You only care about yourself at the expense of other people. God cares not only about what you do with the money that you have and the possessions that you have, but God deeply cares about how you earn those things. That you can, you can do things in a way that's ethical, and you can do things in a way that's not. There's a, um, we've sort of bought into this lie that they're sacred and they're secular. That I have my faith over here and I have my work over here. And in Christianity, it doesn't work like that. I may not be able to pray at work. I may not be able to talk about Jesus in my classroom or in my workplace. But you know what? I am a Christian wherever I go. And if Jesus is Lord of all and he's Lord of my life, then he's Lord of how I work too. And so I better be careful with that. I better be careful. And in those days, Christians were being abused. That's why the text ends the way it does. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Christians were being very abused in those times. That own, landowners had the ability to make people basically slaves to them. In fact, the book of Proverbs, years before Jesus and James are talking about this stuff, says this. You probably recognize uh, verse 6. Train up, uh, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Most people have heard that, right? Listen to verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. The borrower is slave of the lender. If you've ever owed somebody a lot of money, you, you are like a slave to that person, right? you got to pay that back, and if not, they come after you, and they call you, and they get you. we got to be careful with debt as Christians. Because debt has a way of making us fall in line with those who we owe instead of what God's will is. I have known a number of of people who, who are my age or a little bit younger who get into the kind of debt where they feel like God may be calling them to something, like to have kids or to take a new job or to go to seminary, and they can't because they've already spent the money they needed to follow God's will. And you know what? As much debt as we go in, often it's for stuff we don't even remember what it was for. Compare this to 1 Timothy 6. Paul writes these words, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Does Paul say they have to give up their riches? No, actually Paul doesn't. Paul doesn't say that the riches are bad. What you do with it is bad if you are abusing other people. And if you don't realize that God has richly blessed you. Paul takes this, this word rich and he turns it a couple of times, right? God richly blesses you. So be rich in good deeds to other people. See, your your possessions have something to do with how you love God and how you love neighbor. Or how you don't. What does James say? You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Remember the story of the rich young man. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke. Rich young man comes to Jesus and says, you know, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, go follow all the commandments and, and follow the law. And the man says, oh, I've done all that. I've done those things. And Jesus doesn't question him. He must have been a pretty good man. But Jesus says, sell all your possessions or your reward will be in heaven. And Matthew nineteen twenty two records this. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. I mean, if you identify yourself with your stuff, if it's who you are, so you, you you're so distraught when you lose it, or when you have to give it up, if it's who you are, it's a problem. And with the rich young man, Jesus gets right to the heart of it. You do all this good stuff, but you still are reliant on your stuff. But what did Paul say in 1 Timothy? Don't put your hope in your wealth because it's so uncertain. But put your hope in God. See, the Bible is not anti-enjoyment. It's not anti-things. In fact, there are plenty of really good characters that have wealth. We were made by God with bodies. And so it's not just that we're spiritual beings. We are physical beings, too. In fact, God became a physical being. God cares about the physical The world is important, and life can be enjoyed. The idea that we can't have any wealth, I don't think is a... We can't have stuff that we should avoid anything that resembles goodness in this world. I don't think that's a Christian idea either. But we need to be careful. So what can we say about wealth and possessions? Well, it seems to me they're they're a problem when a few criteria might happen. When it keeps you from following Jesus because you're worshiping it or because you're a slave to someone else, then I think it's a problem. When it becomes an idol, when it becomes your identity and your purpose, then it decays and destroys you and keeps you from God. I think it's a problem. When it comes to you in ways that abuse others, then it's a problem. There's a way to be a a Christian used car salesman and then there's a way to not be a Christian used car salesman. Right? There's a way to be a Christian lawyer and not be a Christian lawyer. Insert whatever pos- uh, uh, work you do. There's a way to be a good Christian businessman or woman and to be a poor one. So how you do it if you abuse others is problematic. When you are not thankful or when you treat all your possessions as your own instead of recognizing that all of them come from God, I think it's a problem. And when you're self-indulgent and not generous, The gospel is very self-sacrificing, and that should be the mark of a Christian as well. Right? This is not easy. Not easy stuff. It's hard to figure out. I've known plenty of people who have a lot of wealth and really have good perspective on it and are generous with it. I know people who have a lot of wealth who are stingy and do not understand this from a Christian perspective. But I can say the same stuff about people who do not have wealth. I know plenty of people who are poor, who have a very good Christian perspective on money. And I know people who are very poor, who idolize money just as much as as you might think a rich person, a Scrooge person kind of would. They just idolize money they don't have. We've got to have good perspective, and it takes time to work through these things, to think through these things, to read, to study, to talk with other people. And I want to apologize because I think the church for a long time, not just saying this church, but, but in America, the church and the pastors have talked about money primarily when they need some and not really done a good job training people how to think through money and possessions uh, in their own lives. And I think Jesus is right. This is an area that really guides your heart. And so if you're going to have your heart in the right place with Jesus, you've you got to start thinking through this issue. But I also think it's sad that we can't do this as Christians very easily because we need to be able to do this all the time, Right? If Jesus is Lord, then he's Lord of every part of his kingdom. And if he's Lord of my life, then there's not a part that he doesn't have. Great Calvinist thinker Abraham Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign of all, does not cry, mine. There's no area of your life where Christ can't go, mine, that's mine, that's mine. The way you're thinking about that, that's, that should be mine. Everything is his. And so we need to think not only about money and possessions like like this, but what does it mean to be a Christian spouse? What does it mean to be a Christian and be single? What does it mean to be a Christian grandparent? What's your theology of grandparenting if you're a grandparent in here? How do you think through that role from a Christian perspective? We have people in here who own a hardware store, work at a credit union, are a contractor, are involved in unions, business owners, office managers, waitresses. How does your faith inform that role? Have you thought through what it means to be a Christian and be retired? Those kind of questions are important, and we as a church have done a poor job of practicing how to think those things through. So we need to. James is very bitey and and uh, in your face in his critique of the wealthy. And I do think we need to think about wealth and possessions this way. But I also think we need to, to use this as a time and a model to think through all the areas of our life like this. Let us pray. Lord, we want you to be ruler and king of all that we have and all that we are. And so help us to think those things through. Give us the wisdom to discern your will. With our money and our possessions, yes. Help us to be wise. Help us to to spend on things that glorify you. Help us to enjoy our things and not be guilty, but, but also to be generous and to be caring. But Lord, help us also to think these things through in other areas of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.